Here we are at session nine of 10 in this series of Praying Men of the Old Testament. And uh, number nine is Samuel, and he's known as the child of prayer. And as we have looked each week, uh, we've looked at different men. Uh, no offense, ladies, we're working on a sermon series for the praying women of the Bible, but we've looked at Abraham, Moses, Elijah, um, Nehemiah, Ezra, Hezekiah. Um, it's just been a neat walk through the Old Testament to see how prayer was a major part and had an important impact on the lives of these men, on the lives of the nation of Israel, on the lives of the surrounding nations uh, that they touched through prayer, whatever their role might have been. And we're finishing up this series with Samuel number nine and our next and last one will be number 10, Daniel. It says there in your notes, this is a quote from Spurgeon. Um, I've been to Spurgeon's church in London and uh, got pictures there at the podium. A very precious memory Pastor Stephen and I had together. But this is a quote from him, a great preacher um, of about 100, 200 years ago. That was a grand action by Jerome, one of the Roman fathers. He laid aside all pressing engagements and went to fulfill the call God gave him which was to translate the Holy Scriptures. His congregations were larger than many preachers of today, but he said to his people, now it is necessary that the Scriptures be translated. You must find you another minister. I am bound for the wilderness and shall not return until my task is finished. Away he went and labored and prayed until he produced the Latin Vulgate, which will last as long as the world stands. So we must say to our friends, I must away and have time for prayer and solitude. And though we do not write Latin Vulgates, yet our work will be immortal. Glory to God. What Reverend Spurgeon was saying there is the Holy Spirit calls his men and his women away to times of prayer, away to special assignments. And if we will heed that call, and we will listen to the whisper of the Holy Spirit and we will obey that call, our life can make as much of a difference, if not more, than what Jerome did in writing the Latin Vulgate, which most of the known world heard through the Catholic Church as it was spread and the gospel was spread over the whole earth. So that was a very poignant and very pointed quote by, by Spurgeon. But I love how he ended it. And though we did not write Latin Vulgates, yet our work will be immortal. You and I will make a difference. Um, we're not here by chance. And we're not here just kind of fluffing around hoping we can, you know, I don't know, make a difference in, in somebody's life. No, you and I will make a difference if we are listening to the call and heeding with obedience that call. And... That's the, really the central truth tonight as we look at uh, Samuel's life. Uh, you'll find most of his life story in 1 Samuel. Um, he appears there over and over again. It goes from his birth to his death. Uh, and it's a very, very good record of what God did in and through him. But the central truth is this. If we, you and I, are to enjoy and operate in the blessing of a thriving prayer culture at church, because... We tend to relegate that to church, don't we, at times? 
well, you know, we want prayer to be powerful at church. Or, or we want to see signs and wonders at church. Or, or we want the miracles to show up at church. Or we, man, we better have a good word preached at church. But let me encourage you, family, if we're to enjoy and operate in the blessing of a thriving prayer culture at church, it first must be understood, established, and exercised in the home. Anything we do here is an enhancement of what you're already doing at home. Anything we experience here is an extension of what you're experiencing at home. We've got it backwards if we're counting on the church, ministry, program, building, corporate gathering to meet all of our needs. That will never happen in a lifetime. You and I have to pursue God individually. We, you and I have to build an altar at home with our family. If it's just me or if it's me and my roommate or if it's me and my wife or it's me and my wife and my children, we've got to be spending time in the Lord's presence there so that when we gather collectively, we bring what God's been doing in our life. You bring what God's been doing in your life. You bring what God's been doing in your life. And if you're watching online, you bring what God's been doing in your life. And it's added together. And it's not addition, it's multiplied. And the glory and presence of the Lord can show up in amazing ways. Samuel experienced that because he was a man of prayer. He was a man of pursuit in the secret place, in the private place, in his home. And you might say, well, how did that get started? How did he come to that? Well, as we look in your notes, who was Samuel? Number one, Samuel was born to a devout couple, Elkanah and Hannah, who were childless, oddly enough. Isn't it amazing? Most of the men that we've talked about in these lessons have come from a home where there was barrenness or childlessness or grief because there was no son to be an heir to the family's name and to carry the lineage forward. But he was born, literally birthed through prayer because his mother, Hannah, cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I, I want a son. Will you please give me a son? If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And that, that was, that's such a beautiful thing because it wasn't, if you give me a son, I'll show him off. He'll be my pride and joy and I'll put him on a pedestal. And, and you know, that's not why God gives us things. He gives us things so that his name is glorified and others are blessed. And she said, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. So Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 was literally birthed through prayer. And you know the story. She and Elkanah have gone to the house of worship where Eli was. They've offered their sacrifice. Eli sees Hannah praying. Her mouth's moving. No words are coming out. She's praying from her heart. Eli, he's just a good old priest, you know, like any of us pastors on a Monday or Tuesday. He's like, I think you're drunk. And she's like... No, sir, I promise you I'm not drunk. She was just disturbed and in despair in spirit and was uttering those groans which cannot be heard or understood in, in human flesh. And so like a good old priest, he said, well, then, all right, um, then let it be done. Whatever you've asked of the Lord, let it be done for you. You know, that's a great pat answer uh, when you're not tuned in with the spirit and what's happening in the moment. But he was literally birthed through prayer. And Samuel, number two, was given to the service of the Lord at a very young age. As soon as he was weaned from nursing at his mother's breast, 
She said, okay, buddy, it's time to go to the temple. It's time for you to serve under Eli's ministry and be trained and lent unto the Lord. He was loaned to the Lord. Because of Hannah's vow, Samuel was brought to the temple. He was directly under the supervision of Eli and under the influence of the house of prayer. This is where this man gets his background. He's birthed by prayer and then he's under direct supervision of the leader of the house of prayer and under the influence of the worship of God in the temple and the praise and the prayers that were going up, the offerings and incense and what a rich heritage. I feel like Samuel at times, not because I'm as amazing as he was, but I have such a rich biblical Christian heritage. My grandfather uh, only went through the third grade and my grandmother went through the ninth grade and my grandfather got gloriously saved at a tent meeting in Timmonsville, South Carolina, I believe it was. And he's like, Bert, I, that was my grandmother's name. Her name was Bertha May. And he said, Bert, I, I feel a calling to the ministry. And so he had a thriving grocery business in Williamsburg County. And he, and he closed his store down and he told everybody, if you owe me money and can pay me, pay me. If not, that's fine. I'm, I'm going to start preaching. I, and he had a third grade education. So he started the first assembly of God in King Street, South Carolina. And my grandmother with a ninth grade education would read the Bible and explain it to him on a Friday and a Saturday so he could preach on a Sunday morning. And he saw men and women in that community get saved, brought into the kingdom, signs and wonders, miracles, miracles happening to my uh, grandmother on my other side who attended that church. I mean, I could tell you stories for days, but... I'm from that heritage that Samuel was birthed by prayer. He was brought into the house of prayer. And I feel at times, Lord, what am I doing with this heritage? What am I doing with this gift that you've given me? And some of us feel that way. If you've been brought up in church or you've known the Lord a long time or you've, you've read the word and you know it backwards and forwards or you've experienced the presence of God and you can feel at times, what am I doing with this great gift you've given me? But Samuel turned into the connection point between the book of Judges and the book of Kings. A lot of people, point three in your notes, Samuel is often called the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. So he was that link that the Lord had to put in place. Because up until that time, you know, Israel had been led by judges. God would bring judges up when Israel was in a pickle and they cried out to God, help us. And they were lost in their sin and they were being raided by other nations and pillaged and uh, taken advantage of. And so the Lord would raise up a judge. Uh, they would defeat their enemy. He would reestablish justice in the nation. He would hear the complaints and the cases of the people. And then the worship of God would re be returned. And then they were in that cycle over and over again. Well, Samuel kind of ended that cycle. And he was going to be a prophet because God had never intended Israel to be led by a king. God said, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be your leader, but I'm going to speak through men that I anoint. And Samuel was the first one. I believe if Israel didn't beg for a king, I believe possibly they could have been led by prophets until Jesus came on the scene, which there were led by prophets, even though there were kings. 
So God still gets his way. Even when he says, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. But he's like, I'm still doing what I'm going to do. And so he brought prophets through every king that served Israel. But Samuel's often called the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. He served during the transition Israel had from judges ruling to their desire to be like other nations and ask for a king. So what did Samuel do? Well, he heard the voice of the Lord and obeyed. If you've been in Sunday school, excuse me, as a young person or a child, you probably remember hearing the story of Samuel being asleep and hearing a voice and running to Eli when he hears Samuel, Samuel. And I, remember, I could hear my dad telling me the story during our family devotions. I can hear his voice, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel would get up and run to Eli. Yes, master, you called for me. Uh, no, Samuel, I did not call for you. Go lay back down. And so Samuel, he's just a little kid. And he hears Samuel, Samuel in the stillness of the night. So he runs to Levi, eager to serve, wanting to please the man that he's serving in, in that ministry role because he knows the importance of what he's doing because he's not with his family. He's there. And he's like, did you call for me? And he's like, no, I did not. He said, and, and Eli was like, okay, I need to wake up here. Um, Samuel, this is probably the voice of the Lord. And you're probably going to hear it again because if he's already called you twice, he's probably going to call you a third time. So when he does say, speak for your servant is listening or your servant hears. I remember that story from a young child. And what did Samuel do? He did exactly what Eli said. He was very teachable. He was very honoring to Eli. And he trusted. He trusted his leader. And so he went and laid back down. And sure enough, Samuel, Samuel. And at that point, Samuel got up. And Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. And so Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. In verse 11 of 1 Samuel 3, the Lord said to Samuel, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. And, And it's such a terrible thing that he said about the priesthood, that what he was going to do, he was going to bring correction because there was corruption. There was corruption. Eli was not supervising his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were offering strange fire and taking advantage of the women and taking more food than they should have that was their portion. And it sounds kind of like today a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, we hear stories like that. There's always room for corruption when humans are involved if Jesus is not first, if the Lord is not first and foremost. And I don't want to rehash all of that, but I do want to say this. Eli really realized, he said, you have heard from the Lord because what you're saying is true. This is a little child hearing the voice of the Lord, delivering a very hard and and difficult and challenging message. But because he had been brought up in that atmosphere, that ethos of prayer from a very young age, a praying mom, a worshipful and reverent father, taking him to the temple to sacrifice and to ask God for a son and to have him encounter the presence there that they would encounter. Um, You might say, well, how did Samuel hear? Again, praying mom, he was exposed to the house of prayer. He was reared in and under the influence of this prayer environment. And so Eli said, whatever the Lord wills, let it be done. He knew it was true. He knew that Samuel had heard from the Lord. 
Samuel also, number two, preached against, preached repentance and called upon Israel to turn away from their idols. First Samuel 7, verses two to four says, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, Israel was having trouble with the Philistines at this time. And they kept coming in and making trouble for them. And Eli wasn't doing what he was supposed to. The worship to God that was supposed to be taking place was not taking place. The honor to God and the honor in the priesthood and in the sacrifices and in the handling of, of the, the godly implements in the temple. None of that was taking place. And so God's like, I got to wake people up. I got to send an enemy. And the Lord will allow enemies to come to wake us up to see our need for him. But he says, put all of that away and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and asterisks and served the Lord only. That is a miracle in itself that he brought forth a word from God and they responded in such a way. What else did Samuel do? He also anointed Israel's first kings, Saul and then David. Now Saul, um, and he wept over that. He's like, this was not God's plan. But God said, okay, I'll, I'll let you anoint a king. And so he found Saul, anointed him. Saul didn't work out. He, he was arrogant. He, he worked out at first, but I, I think it got to his head. I think the kingship uh, got to his arrogant nature and his ego side. And he's like, hey, I can, I can take care of things. And so what did he do? He took the role of the prophet. He took the role of the priest. And offered sacrifice to God. He didn't obey by killing Agag and all the people and animals um, from that raid. And he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. But he didn't wait. And that was the day the kingdom was taken from him. And it was a downhill slide from there. So Samuel was sent out again. That was in chapter 9 when Saul was anointed. In chapter 16, David is anointed as king. And you know that story. He goes to the house of Jesse. Saul looks at all the brightest and best and... He, he's still listening to that still small voice, the same one that said, Samuel, Samuel. He's listening as he stands. I could just imagine him standing in front of each of one of Jesse's sons and the Holy Spirit saying, nope, that's not him. Nope, this isn't the one. It's not him either. And he's probably confused because he, kn he knew he was told to go see Jesse. And he said, Jesse, any more sons? And Jesse's like, well, there's David. He's out in the field watching the sheep, but I didn't even think to bother him because you're looking for king material, right? And he said, call for, call for David. David came, and sure enough, he was the one. And the Holy Spirit confirmed it. He was anointed as king. So we see Samuel's action in the history of Israel from being a young child and delivering that hard, challenging word to Eli about how the house of Eli would come down and how things would be reestablished and, and set up. And then we see him dealing with Israel's repentance, calling them back to God away from their idols. And we see him anointing kings, even though it wasn't God's plan for Israel. But our focus really is on how was prayer a part of all this? Because 
the focus of these lessons has been how was prayer the priority of their lives? And prayer was the priority of Samuel's life in three ways. You see that in your notes. Number one, Samuel was raised by a praying mother and in the house of prayer. 1 Samuel 1, 10 and 11, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And then we also see in 1 Samuel 2, 18 and 26, the fulfillment of that request. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. And then several verses later, verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. We've heard that somewhere before, haven't we? Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And I believe that Samuel was a forerunner for us to understand what that looked like and how that was to happen. Number two, Prayer was a priority in Samuel's life because Samuel cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel and the Lord defeated the Philistines. So we see him calling them to repentance and a life of holiness and getting rid of their idols. A little bit later on in that passage that we were reading earlier, 1 Samuel 7 verses 8 and 9, they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. What happened? The Lord thundered and just destroyed the Philistine army. I mean, no weapons were necessary. It was just the presence of God and his thundering on the earth that shut him down. And it's because the true worship of Jehovah was taking place in obedience. Israel had in Samuel a man who could pray, a man who knew the worth and place of prayer, and a leader who had God's ear. And that's what made all the difference. And number three, we see how prayer was a priority in Samuel's life. In every situation Israel faced, Samuel first turned to the Lord in prayer. An example of that is found in 1 Samuel 8 verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. He didn't fuss at him. What did he do? He's like, this isn't right. So I've got to go talk to Jesus. I've got, Lord, I've got to find out what your plan is, what you want to do, because that's the way I want to go. He learned to listen and he learned to obey. So how do we apply this to our lives in the few minutes we have left? Well, I believe there's simply three things we can look at. There's probably a hundred, but these are three that I want to highlight as we finish out this lesson. Praying Samuels come from praying Hannah's. Praying priests come from the house of prayer. Praying leaders come from praying homes. I just want to encourage you. That's why in everything we do at Christian Life Church, and if we fail, it's, it's because we... We're just trying too hard probably. But we want to create environments where our children, our teenagers, our young adults, our seniors, and everybody in between can encounter the presence of the Lord. And we choose to create atmospheres 
an ethos, if you will, where people can encounter God and he can encounter them. Because if we can create that, God will do the rest. If we can make room for him, he'll speak to hearts just like he spoke to Samuel in the temple in the middle of the night. And that's why it's so important. I cannot say this enough. Praying Samuel's come from praying Hannah's. Moms and dads, if you've got kids, they need to hear you praying out loud at home over them. They need to know your heart for them on a spiritual level. They need to know that you're fully invested in their spiritual growth. No one can do that. Pastor Bella can't do that. Pastor Mike can't do that. I would try, but I would die trying. I cannot do it. You have to do that for your children. You have to do that for your spouse. You have to do that for your extended family. That altar and that prayer has to be set up in your home. And those prayers have to be going forth from your mouth and your heart. And you might say, but I, I don't know how to pray. Then come join us on Sunday night. We, we, we listen to praying and that teaches us how to pray. Watch the International House of Prayer online in the prayer room. They're praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you wake up at three in the morning and you're like, I can't go back to sleep, put on IHOP. You'll learn how to pray at three in the morning. If it's 7.30 in the morning or 5.15 in the afternoon, you can turn it on anytime and you'll be learning how to pray the scripture, how to pray God's will, how to seek God's face for your family because your first altar is in your home. My first altar is in my home. What good would it do me to help everyone else with their family and their prayer life and me watch my family go to hell? I have got to pray in my house for my family. That's my responsibility. Moms and dads, your kids, your grandkids, your nieces and nephews, they are your responsibility. And God's not saying that to point a finger at you and saying, well, you, you're terrible. No, he's saying, I've given them to you because you are what they need. They need to hear. You don't need to pray like Pastor Justin. You don't need to pray like Billy Graham. You don't need to pray like anybody else. You need to pray like you pray because that's who your kids need to hear. They need to hear your heart to the Father, especially about their lives and what you're wanting God to do in and through them. And let me just tell you, if you're here tonight and you don't have children, you have influence over children and you can pray over them as well. And you need to let them hear you pray over them because it will make all the difference in the world. Praying Samuels come from praying Hannah's. Praying priests come from the house of prayer. And praying leaders come from praying homes. If we want to see praying leaders, we got to have praying homes. And I believe, I believe we're stellar but I believe we can all do better. And I'm pointing the finger at me. We've got to have prayer in the home. Number two, whether leading a family or a business or a team or a nation, we must first go to the Lord in prayer. Samuel got it right. What do you want me to do, Jesus? Father, what is in your will for this situation? How do I navigate this circumstance? Give me understanding and wisdom so that I can see your result played out. And then finally, number three, we must hear the voice of the Lord and obey just like young Samuel did. I'm so glad he learned it young. And we have an opportunity if we have young children to teach them young. The younger they learn, the better it's going to be for them to hear the voice of the Lord, and to obey. How do they hear? 
Well, we pursue. We go where he is. We spend time with him in prayer, in worship, in reading the word, attending church services, serving in ministry, being active in a life group, discipleship one-on-one with other believers. That's how we learn to hear because we're in a community who's hearing and we want to confirm what we've heard with others and with the things God's given us in the word and in prayer. How do we obey? Simply by doing what he says when he says it. Because we can have non-obedience where the Lord tells us to do something, we just say, I'm not doing it. We can have delayed obedience where he says to do something and then we think about it and wonder about it and pray about it and ask 15 people about it and then we finally get around to doing it. Or what we've tried to teach our children from very early is instant obedience. And this is the reason why. When I call my son or daughter's name, I want them to stop immediately. It could save their very life. And so if they can learn instant obedience from their earthly father, we need to learn and teach instant obedience from our heavenly father because he could say a word that could save our very life. And chances are that's the case every time. And he's looking for men and women. He's looking for teenagers. He's looking for boys and girls who will listen and be sensitive to his voice and then instantly obey because they know it's him. They don't have to think. They don't have to wonder. They don't have to hope. They know because they've spent the time in his presence to know it's him. Samuel's such a powerful man of prayer. But it all started in that innocent state of being a child. And that's really the emphasis tonight. If we're going to enjoy that blessing of a thriving culture of prayer in our church, it must first be understood, established, and exercised in the home. We've got to start when they're young, we've got to start when they're small. And it's a training, it's a processing, it's an understanding, it's a growing, it's a maturing. And then we truly can build godly generations. And prayer will be at the center of it all. Isn't that wonderful? We have that opportunity before us. Let's pursue that together.